Welcome to the PIP podcast number 31. Today we're talking with Emma Kate Rose and Robert Pekin from Food Connect in Brisbane. Food Connect is a social enterprise local food system and CSA and is doing amazing things for the local food community in Brisbane and further afield. So enjoy this podcast with them and I hope you get inspired. Robert began Food Connect in 2004 and Emma Kate came on board around 2009. We'll talk about that later. And yeah, I'd love to, we're really excited to hear about what Food Connect is and what it does. So thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat about it today. Great to see you, Robin. Yeah. Now, could you tell the listeners what Food Connect is and how it works? Um, so it's basically um, um, a community-supported agriculture, multi-farm CSA project, um, but contextualised to the Australian sort of um, the Australian condition, how um, the Australian farmers, the the, the, the large landmass without the um, you know without the sort of the the population density that um, mm. a lot of other places around the world work. So yeah. it, was, it was a model based on those really deep-rooted philosophies out of Steiner and out of permaculture and out of out of um, small is beautiful, you know, Schumacher and those amazing economists uh, yeah. around in the you know sixties and seventies who wrote you know pretty 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 amazing work. Um, and then um, it, you know, it was just uh, um, that that really deep grounding work on what what do I want to do out of my... It was basically the reverse of what I experienced as a dairy farmer. Yeah. Everything that catapulted me into, you know, this, um, this abyss from the dairy farming world, I just reversed and, and um, you know, in terms of the structure and all that sort of stuff, which we'll get onto later on. But I just basically looked at that whole experience over the last 20 or 30 years in the dairy farming and the deregulation and supermarket control and, 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 and corporate sort of structures and just reversed all of that and said, well, if I'm going to create something that enables a lot more farmers to get this really amazing experience of being connected to the people who eat their food, mm. then I need, to, I need to have something that really reflects the values um, um, and reflects the inverse of what I experienced as a dairy farmer. So, yeah. So how? So it's a food, a local food system. So mm. what's the actual structure of it? Like, how, what are the nuts and bolts of like how it actually works? It's connecting um, local farmers around Brisbane. Yeah, yeah. It's really, yeah. It's a pretty simple process. It's just um, um, uh, obviously it's iterated over time, and we've got more nuanced as the as the, yeah. the world of awareness in food and and farming and where you know all that sort of thing over the last sixteen years is now. At an amazing point, um, but yeah, back then it was a really simple concept. I just wanted to put a ring around, um, you know, however many farmers wanted to get involved um, around Brisbane, and sort of said, "No, I'm just going to buy off you guys, and I'm going to find, um, you know, in a brazen way, I'm just going to find a bunch of people in Brisbane who want to eat seasonally and want to, you know, support you farmers and want to pay in advance and want to yeah. participate in something a bit, a bit more profound than the." You know the food food system um, that was that was around or dominant, 
Um, and then um, through a, a like a you know one of those things that just happens when um, when you go out and try to create something rather where you don't really know what the model's going to look like. Um, yeah. A bunch of mums, Brisbane mums, got on board and they created this city cousin idea, this community pickup sort of zone. Can you explain that to people? Yeah, so it's basically just a it's just a neighbourhood. It's a city cousin. A city cousin is a collection point where we deliver twenty thirty you know, 50 boxes to, and then everyone in that neighbourhood will pick up from that. Generally, yeah. it's a house, but it can be a community. We have got community groups. Some shops um, become city cousins. Um, you know, schools, we've had schools being city cousins. Um, and, and then you know, people just come and It's very much an honesty system. You, the box is there with your name on it. Yeah. Um, and you just, you know, pick it up and sign on a bit of a piece of paper, like no one has to even be there in some places, yeah. some, in some yeah. of the city cousins, and off they go, yeah. And so do people order, They like you're saying, they pay in advance, so they just pay a set amount each month or week or do they sort of order specific things that they want? Yeah, it used to be when we did have our own bespoke software system, it was they paid, they paid four weeks in advance was the minimum, Yeah. and then some people would pay up to two years in advance back in the early days, yeah. so like, you know, yeah, it was quite a um, – um, that was back when expectations around um, clicking on online ordering systems weren't as um, as high as they are now. So, uh, yes. unfortunately, the software – and Emma, Emma can probably – because she, she uh, launched the latest software, which we enabled last year, at the start of last year, which doesn't – unfortunately, it doesn't do long-term subscriptions like we used to. Um, but the fundamental concept is still, you know, embodied in, in, in what we do. Yeah. And, um, and so with the farmers, what, do you have a distance? Like, do you have a, a line around Brisbane? And mm. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's doing two things at the moment. For some products, it's going out, and for other products, it's coming in. Okay. So we, for years, it was just a three-hour radius, and then we went okay. to a four-hour radius and a five-hour radius. Because yeah. I become more aware of social justice issues with farmers who are between central distribution, so mm. Coffs Harbour farmers, particularly Coffs Harbour, Dallingen farmers. They are halfway between Sydney and Melbourne. Okay. Um, and that was that was to keep it really simple, so people who are buying could go, oh, okay, that's it, you know, that's it. But then about five years ago, when we celebrated our tenth birthday, we had this big discussion about are we moving the needle, and are customers up for a more robust, nuanced conversation about where all their food should come from into the future. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we come up with what we call the Brisbane Food Plan and it's, uh, we've looked at 13 food categories from you know fresh food right through to spices and coffees and those sort of things. And we looked at all those 13 food groups through four lenses, a social justice lens, an economic lens, an environmental lens and a human health lens. Mm. And um, through those four lenses and the 13 groups, we then created zones, permaculture. So we divided the world into six zones. <laughs> you, you'll be very familiar with this. Yeah. With their house um, being, being zone zero, with yeah. our customer's house being zone zero. So we wanted people to really think seriously about, you know, uh, what they could grow in their own backyards or balconies um, and a whole bunch of things. And we've given ourselves 10 years to um and it become a strategy yeah so it's very very it's much more um even my um the the team 
um, you know, the procurement um, farmer liaison uh, coordinator, he still struggles with, you know, how do we do this, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, because yeah. what it means is that um, the, the farmers that we have at the moment who are, you know, in places like Stanthorpe, which is a three and a half hour um, drive from um, Brizzy, and at particular times of the year, particularly in summer, they're, they're quite a big, um, you know, fresh green growing area for herbs and, and fresh greens because they've got like that cooler climate. Yeah. They're, they're a much higher altitude. So um, the challenge is um, how do we bring particularly those really perishable things like herbs and fresh greens back into people's backyards so that eventually they're not even on our list of things to buy. Yeah. Yeah. People are actually sourcing those from their neighbourhoods, you know, yeah. their street verges and their community, local community gardens mm. because they are so easy to grow um, and they're so perishable. Um, so it doesn't make sense to be sourcing them from three and a half hours away. Mm. Um, so, so the challenge is to try and bring those zones back into kind of reality um, for our farmers as much as... Yeah. Uh, our customers yeah. but how do you communicate that with your customers and encourage that um we've got um well with our farmers that was the first people we communicated with because we were getting you know lettuces from upper gimpy or a little bit north of gimpy which is um two and a bit hours away and we told them in 10 years time we won't be buying lettuces from you um, yeah. because we've written into that strategy that outside of the peri-urban area of brisbane we won't be getting any of those succulent greens so they need to start thinking about um, creating their own food system for their region if they want to keep growing lettuces. We're happy to take, you know, other, other um, you know, things like corn or, or whatever else, you know, in, in accordance with that Brisbane food plan. Um, and we've um, sent, the, you know, the Brisbane food plan out to all sorts of people to, to look at and study. It needs to be... Um, uh, we haven't marketed it as such to really communicate it. Um, but we're still five years away from from that strategy being enacted, although we have shared it so many times, like so many people in Brisbane are aware of the Brisbane food, food plan. So um, hopefully, oh, well, we do know that that is influencing people and it's empowering, um, you know, particularly we've got a, a gaggle of young farmers who grow in the suburbs here. Um, oh, you know, great. Yeah, and it really empowers them that says, yes, you know, Food Connector, uh, getting behind this idea of of um, of um, supporting those growers and uh, it's like a network of family of farmers from you know out, well globally really if you think yeah. about it who are working off the one song sheet yeah and wherever their farm is they can basically you know replicate that idea mm. um, and uh, and yeah it gives them agency it gives them um, it gives them a plan. Yeah, it gives them a plan, but also it gives them a bit of, bit of a toe up the bum as well. Like, you, mm. you know, everyone needs a bit of a toe up the bum to say, hey, listen, you know, we can do better and we need to keep thinking mm. um, about how, how much more we can shift the needle. But it's also giving them security to know that if they do go in this direction, yeah. you're going to be there supporting them, buying their produce. Yeah, and that's pretty good. Yeah, back in the early days, that was because Brisbane had been so, you know, the farmers up the Brisbane Valley, the Lockyer Valley, and all of those wonderful valleys that mm. face northeast, they were, they were really great onion growing zones. Yeah. But when I started Food Connect, no one grew onions anymore because South Australian farmers were growing them on sand using heaps of chemicals. They'd even stolen their plant breeding rights. 
So they were going, well, I'm not going to grow onions again, you know, um, because we've been shafted before. Um, yeah. So, you know, what are you going to do that's any different? And I said, I'm not going to grow, I'm not going to buy onions unless they're from this three-hour radius. You know, this is yeah. back in the early days. So that gave them the, um, the encouragement to go, oh, well, I'll, I'll get back into it. Like oh, yeah. one farmer. Food Connect went without onions for a very, very long time. And like we, we started with like a season of two weeks of onions. Everyone wants onions. So our poor yeah. customers, you know, they had to like really be committed to like buy with us and then, you know, go somewhere else to get their yeah. onions. Yeah, that's right. We had to really, I mean, there's, there's leeks and there's spring onions in summertime. Yeah. There's all sorts of alternatives. But yeah, the, um, the farmer's... Because uh, one particular farmer, he he was our honey grower and he wasn't an onion breeder. Um, and he took me over to his sheds. He had five sheds all tacked on together and he opened up the roller door on them and in them was all of these, um, all his onion growing, seeding, planting, all the gear was still there. Wow. And including all his onions. So he still clipped and grew them in his own backyard. So we connected him with a couple of other farmers who were thinking about getting back in onions. Same with carrots. Um, so it just really, you know, bringing the community together, you know, in those original first meetings about, you know, farmers can grow this 52 weeks of the year, all these bits and pieces. Um, and then those original Brisbane mums would get together and design the boxes around what their family needed. And then when you put the farmers and the mums together, and they go, and then the farmers would go, oh, actually, I could probably grow this, this and this, you know, because yeah, the, gaps, yeah. the yeah. gaps started to identify. But, yeah, getting back to Emma's point earlier, you know, those original customers who come on board Food Connect in the early days, um, they went without a lot of things. They were hardcore yeah. believers. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes that can be the problem with um, when you have a box system that people think, oh, what if it's, you know, mm. it's not oh, what I yes. like. Or, you know, or the other problem is sometimes you are growing things and you might be getting the same as what you're growing. So, yeah, um, yeah so it sounds like over the years you've created this amazingly nuanced system that can work and change and suit yeah. the customers and the farmers. Yeah, it was, um, it was really important um, for, for the conversations to always be um, stimulating a more intellectual conversation about where our food come from rather than, you know, the polarised conversations we have now around meat or veganism. You know, these sort yeah. of, there's so much more nuance and, and yeah. complexity and, um, uh, and intelligence needed to think more about, the, uh, you know, a holistic food system and how it can yeah. work. Yeah. yeah. So what are some of the parameters around um, requirements that you have for your farmers to be part of Food Connect? Um, they've, they've also become more nuanced over the years. Um, obviously, in the early days, you know, people wanted that certification um, to guarantee, you know, there was a big thing um, back then and there was some misuse of the organic logo back then. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, fundamentally, it was just good farmers. I just wanted good farmers. And I wanted farmers, in particular, Robin, it was... Have me being an organic dairy farmer and then a biodynamic market gardener in Tasmania, I was a, very aware of how those labels actually put off a lot of other farmers and, I, and to the point where they were actually stopping farmers, good farmers, from taking a more um, progressive approach to, you know, becoming organic or biodynamic or whatever it is. So I really um, 
I just framed it ecological farmers. I was just looking for ecological farmers, um, and that was in all of our branding. And what I would do is I'd leave the farmers with this eight-point checklist. It was called a self-assessment or a farm character self-assessment checklist. Yeah. And I, at the end, when I said hello and had a had a sandwich and a cup of tea, I'd leave <laughs> them with this 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 um, two-page thing for them to fill out in their own time. And um, it was it was a way. Well, the design of it was to re-inspire them about why they were farming mm. rather than whether they were organic or whether they were this, that or whatever. Yeah. It was just to fire off their imagination about why, you know, what were the possibilities for them selling through an organisation like us that was interested in, in them unfolding their potential and us be just, <laughs> just thinking bigger about the whole subject. And what were some of those points that you had on there? Um, well, the first, the first question was, "What inspires you about being a farmer?" You know, and then it, it, it and then it had sort of some um, checkpoints, like um, to give you an idea about how to answer that question. Um, what books have you read about farming? Who, what other farmers have inspired you? You know, like, and then they yeah. go, "Oh yeah," you know, look in your bookshelf, and you'll quickly see what, you know, what really, you know. Yeah. Supercharges you. So, um, people, yeah, I mean, sorry, Rob. Um, we've got a for, for any old farmer who comes to our website, we've got a form that they fill out basically at a yeah. practical, on a practical level. And you know, the page kind of it's a bit of a screen, like if you if it's a bit of a screen, like we've got a bunch of points there for farmers to go, well. You know, if you're going to farm with us, um, you've got to be more than just a farmer. We want to go beyond organic. Um, we want you to embrace the principles of, you know, local um, economies, um, that you're a part of your community, that you, you know, use the best practices of agroecological farming, um, that you know your own supply chains, you know, so yeah. you know where you're sourcing your stuff from in order to grow food. Um, and yeah, there's no no particular emphasis on certification. We will we will take anyone who um, can can demonstrate to us that they're farming agroecologically. Yeah. Um, so that could be permaculture. It could be just no inputs. Um, could just be you know chucking a bit of compost on. It could be biodynamic. Um, yeah. Demeter, you know. So it's a whole range but it's much deeper in terms of, um, you know, how they, how they look at their land, the, you know, um, what inspires them to farm, um, you know, what, why they're doing it in the first place, not just because they're a fourth generation apple orchard farmer, you know? Yeah, yeah. And have you, have you had issues finding enough farmers? No, no got a waiting list. So too many. It's the opposite. Has it always been like that, or was it yeah. a slow process of trying to find people? And yeah, it was in the early days. I did have a bit of a challenge because I thought thirty. Well, we had seven farmers originally, and then we quickly needed about thirty. Um, and then as the seasons changed, um, uh, I needed to find more farmers that could, you know, basically fill the box because customer expectations. As I was saying before, there was the yeah. value of the multi-farmer thing. Customer expectations were quite a concern because no point being purist or altruistic about your model uh, if you've got no one purchasing it's uh, yeah uh, that sort of defeats the purpose in a way as hard as it is to swallow 
Um, and for me, I was pretty hardcore in the early probably three or four years. And then I realised that, you know, the scale, the appropriate scale that we needed to be at, you know, we needed to be a, a bit more, um, uh, have a bit more of a funnel, both for farmers and for customers to come in and get a sniff of this and get a, you know, yeah. get a sense of, oh, okay, this is pretty exciting. Um, and, and they can start their journey towards, you know, a more altruistic, purist, purist um, perspective of food. But, but we, needed to, we need to get people, you know, in, in the camp, as it were, to... Uh, uh, and, and that's that whole thing, because my experience as a dairy farmer was I was so disempowered, um, and I knew a lot of dairy farmers around my area were still using chemicals because that was what they were told to do by the main dairy organisation. So mm. for me to be telling them that they need to be something else was, was disrespectful and would, was, was counterproductive. So yeah. I needed to have something that actually gave um, it. And, well, that's the other thing. There was two parts to it. One, how I dairy farmed and my journey towards becoming organic, um, but also my journey to becoming closer to me who, who I was, and most farmers in the world are pretty, you know, um, are pretty not, they're not very well connected to themselves, to their families, to their land. And, um, and that's, that, that's such a shock, that's such a shame. Um, so as Emma was saying before, the idea was for them to start to think about them having holidays, start to think about their relationship with the land, they were just, I was really wanting them to inspire something that triggered something inside of them where they could come out and go, ah, oh, yeah, okay, and start their journey towards, towards mm. being um, whatever it is they want to be. Because once you go on that journey, once you get that spark, then, um, you know, they'll become amazing farmers. You don't need to tell them anything. You just need to give them that spark. I don't need a certification. And I think one of the things that we like to see ourselves as is that we're a transition model. Yeah. You know? um, we know that at the moment the world's changing so quickly and so fast and we're getting all these big, you know, converging crises hitting mm -hmm. us all at the same time and it's coming down the barrel. And, and so we knew that um, it was, it's, you know, it's going to be tough for us to switch from mainstream capitalist society and getting all our fruit and veg from the supermarkets to growing our own. It's just, it's too much of an ask for people to be able to prepare in that way um, when there's no real incentive currently for them to do that. Mm. So having a, a model in the middle that transitions people where they feel comfortable enough to farm you know, and, and trial and experiment and go deeper if they need to or learn from each other. Like we really try and encourage our farmers to talk to each other and share information, which is pretty much unheard of in horticulture. Mm. Um, so, um, and also on the other end, the customers as well, you know, they, they get a taste for what it's like to be part of a local food system and, and the kind of food citizenship that comes with that, um, yeah. you know, so... So we just like, so yeah, so we don't pretend that we'll be around forever. We're just a transition model um, so that we can um, take everyone in the value chain along that journey. And a lot of our farmers come with us um, that start with us, get, we give them a stable market for them to be able to, you know, get stable themselves in their own business. Yeah. 
Um, and then eventually they get the confidence to go off on their own and do their own CSA or to do their own, you know, farm gate or farmers markets or online, you know, direct to customer relationships. And so to have that big piece in the middle where people can feel safe to then go and launch their own thing is really important to us. So we don't try and lock farmers into contracts. Um, you know, we don't specify that they've got to be certified. Um, we encourage them to talk to each other. Um, and, you know, this Saturday night, we're, we're hosting our first ever inaugural Humongous Fungus Award where we've asked our farmers to send in their soil samples and we've tested them for the most healthiest soil. Oh, yeah, that's um, great. Yeah, and so we want to try and also make it fun because it's the community that we're a part of. So yeah. give them an opportunity to come to the big smoke and, you know, talk to real city people. Yeah, <laughs> about soil. Yeah, that's right. Um, so there's been... Oh, so we in the um, issue, the latest issue in issue seventeen of PIP, you've written an article about this, and yeah, there's some pretty impressive figures that um, are in that. Uh, so some of those were fifteen householders fed local nutritious food weekly, twenty permanent jobs. That's within the Food Connect, not the not the farmers, obviously, mm. and then twenty nine million generated in the local food economy. So yeah, that's, there's some pretty massive figures there and things that are happening. And one of the big ones was the 50% of the retail price returned to farmers. So, um, yeah, it's getting better yeah. too. Is that? Yeah. Well, COVID, so, COVID, yeah. Yeah. So tell me, you, you mentioned that before, what effect, well, I mean, this has been going on, but so, you know, we, in COVID in the beginning, especially we really saw the problems that existed in the food economy where, Supply and demand weren't so easily um, <laughs> adjusted for the, what was going on. How, what was your experience of that? How did Food Connect go through COVID? And, yeah. yeah, pretty. Um, it was um, a pretty rapid um, increase. Um, you know, March, mid-March, um, when things got real, I suppose, and uh, and toilet paper was disappearing off the shelves and. <laughs> And, and shortly thereafter, you know, there was empty shelves in the supermarkets. Yeah, we, we quadrupled in sales, Robin. We yeah, uh, right. massive increase. Like, yeah, we we were putting on people left, right and centre, drivers, you know, um, vans. Um, so it was a, it was a, a you know, it was a, <laughs> we just moved into, because um, as you know, we've got the Food Connect shed now and we just yeah. finished building new offices, um, cold room, storage, cold room different cold room storage uh, at a capacity of five times greater than the old cold room. Um, you know, a brand new packing room. So it's we were perfect sort of, timing. Yeah. yeah. The timing was like, we just wouldn't have been able to do it um, in the yeah. old facility. Um, yeah. And then um, as, as um, COVID sort of come off, um, you know, there was this gradual decline um, mm. and then it's, we're sitting at around about um, a little bit more than double. Um, what we were pre-COVID, and it's and it's now climbing again. Yeah. Um, so, as you said, you know the cracks uh, in the in the industrial food complex. Are, um, you know, there's a lot of questions being asked. Um, it's been quite an interesting time because you'd think people would just be focusing on COVID and that's it, but actually, a lot of other conversations: climate change, bushfire, mm. um, sustainability. It's really been um, COVID has 
it seems to us has awakened a lot of other conversations yeah. that weren't previously, you know, um, that were being discussed, but probably not as seriously. Mm. Well, I think COVID's had such a profound impact on the world that now we're like, oh, things can actually change, you know, it can affect you. And, and I think like the bushfires as well. I mean, I know here when around New Year's when everyone got told to leave the area and then all the roads were shut in and out, there was no way for a day or two for anyone to get in or out of the Vega Valley. And, mm. yeah, it was like, wow, well, what, what happens with food? You know? yeah. And I mean, this is something I've been really kind of passionate about for a long time. And yeah, we, we're very reliant on those outside sources. And I mean, yeah, it wasn't long before the trucks could get back in. So there wasn't any major disruption, but it just shows you what can happen, you know. Yeah. That, Absolutely. Yeah. And how quickly it can happen too. Yeah. We, um, we had a similar experience back in 2011 with um, the Brisbane floods. Um, you know, and there were stories where, you know, the Mary River up at Gympie was totally blocked, which um, prevented any food getting from um, anywhere north of Gympie uh. um, down to the Brisbane Central Markets and then back again to feed, you know, the rest of Queensland. And, um, you know, there's the kind of stories that you, we heard in the supermarkets were, you know, where they had to limit, um, you know, loaves of bread to two two loaves per person at the checkout and um there was a story where one woman had you know 10 loaves of bread in her trolley and she was told to put eight loaves back and instead of putting them back on the shelf she threw them on the ground and stomped on them oh, <laughs> and on. yeah and and she was like it, it, the same thing happened during covid you know with this panic buying mm. um and that's because the fear like the fear that's driven through just basically a lack of skills yeah you know and we've got a few generations now who just don't know how to cook they wouldn't know how to bake a loaf of bread mm. yeah know where to start yeah um, and that's kind of where we sort of come in with pit magazine we're really trying to build up those skills and knowledge again for people so that exactly those real practical things and that's one of the things that's happened during COVID is that because of the lockdown and this doesn't happen in floods or natural disasters, but the pandemic's been really interesting in terms of forcing us to stay put for weeks, mm -hmm. not months on end, yeah. um, and cooking from scratch and learning. Yeah. And, and it, you know how they say it takes, is it 90 days or 30 days to change a habit? I don't know. 90. Um, but it's enough, of, enough time to actually yeah. develop new skills and, and learn new habits. And that's been the beauty of COVID has been this reawakening of, yeah. of um, old skills that, you know, are all of a sudden modern again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think once you've experienced the beauty of creating those things, like making your own bread or making ferments or growing your own food, you don't forget that. Even if you might, you know, life might get really busy again and you run out of time. You yeah. still have that knowledge with you and That's you can right. still pick it up or just have it simmering yeah. in the background. You know, I mean, I'm like that with bread. I go through stages where I make it all, you know, nearly every day, every second day. And then I just get busy. And luckily I've got a beautiful organic sourdough bakery up the road and I can support them. But, <laughs> you know, like we don't yeah. necessarily all have to do all these things all the time. But no. if we've got those skills and if we're part of a community of people who are doing it, 
you can have the people making the bread and the person growing the food and as a community you've got that resilience totally exactly yeah i think and sometimes people get worried like oh you know having to do all the do everything yeah that's right yeah that's stressful and you know overwhelming mm-hmm. but yeah. yeah and i think that's what's so fantastic about what you're doing is it's creating that community where everyone's got their role and everyone can support each other yeah, and they can find their they can find their role even through COVID. Because um, yeah. at the shed here, we had nine, we have twenty seven tenants, and nine tenants had a bit of a rough time, you know, because they were servicing the hospitality sector or the events and entertainment oh, yeah. side of things. And um, uh, after a couple of weeks of them pirouetting and changing things, and um, you know, we 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 just employed them on the food connect packing line whilst they thought <laughs> about things and and oh, did their bit. But then we had an avalanche, probably, well, an avalanche is probably not the right word, but maybe two months in, we started to have people ring us and say, can we rent your kitchen because I've been, you know, wanting to start this business, you know, whether it's oh, yeah. baking bread and, uh, and COVID has given me the perfect time to think about, yes, what do I want to do with my life? And I really love doing this and people love my product. So, yeah, so we've got, um, so we've had four new businesses start um, in the last two months and we've got more and more people now applying wanting to rent space in the kitchen mm. to start their own businesses which is just beautiful you know yeah yeah, yeah. soon Emma and I have a dream that soon we won't have to do any because I don't mind cooking and Emma doesn't mind cooking she's a pretty good chef but you know <laughs> soon we won't have to cook anything you know it'll just be you know <laughs> yeah so yeah. this is this is all a ploy for Robert to never go back into farming <laughs> And to never cook for himself. Because I always have this little dream that we'll end up on a farm somewhere growing our own or milking our own cows. And he's like, no way. That's why I've set up Food Connect. So I never have to do that again. (laughs) So this um, shed that um, you did a fundraiser for, and can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, Well, um, long story short, we've always wanted to own our own building. And we'd been also been following for many years the local food hub movement in the US, um, where communities and farmers would get together and um, with a bit of seed funding from the federal government around, you know, rural renewals um, projects. And they would set up these local food hubs um, that would aggregate um, from all the local farmers and growers and makers and distribute into institutions like, um, you know, prisons and hospitals and universities and the like, Um, but also run box systems out of them as well. They they come in all sorts of shapes and and forms. There's no sort of formula for a food hub. They're all very different, um, but they all have that common sort of local focus. um, and um and a lot of community involvement so that really inspired us and we had been badgering or robert had been badgering our landlord who we have a really great relationship with um to buy the building and after a few years he eventually relented and gave us um an option deed to to you know gave us a little bit of time because obviously as a social enterprise um we had no money Mm. Um, so he gave us a year. It was quite a lot you needed to raise, wasn't it? Yeah. So the selling price um, was one point eight million. Yeah. Right. Um, and a then lot on of potatoes and onions. <laughs> a lot of, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's you know, that's practically at, um, you know almost at that time it was almost our a whole year's revenue just for Food Connect. 
Um, and also the building that we're in, we're only using a third of the space. So we had to have a plan for what we were going to do with the rest of it as well. Yeah. Um, but we were really passionate about owning because as a social enterprise, one of the most, one of the biggest costs is rent. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest risks is security of tenure because you're always at the beck and call of yeah. selling un underneath you and you're having to move on. Um, which Food Connect had experienced before in in the early days. Um, so yeah, so we we set about it. Initially, we found a couple of um, ethical investors, um, and then at the board meeting, we were like, "Is this really moving the needle?" Um, you know that a couple of benevolent kind of rich white blokes are giving us the money to buy the building. We're still, you know, we still there's nothing in that that's different to what we're currently doing, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the same time, the federal government had just passed the ethic, um, equity crowdfunding legislation, um, which allows businesses, um, PTYLTDs, so um, at that time, um, sorry, not PTYLTDs, it was public unlisted companies, um, to basically um, crowdfund um, equity in their business. So everyone knows what crowdfunding is. You give a donation, you get a free T-shirt, you know, to start a project or help a business out. Um, this is actually proper shares in a business. Okay. We had to set up a separate entity um, called Food Connect Shed. And basically um, the idea is to run a campaign to raise that money with your customers and supporters and networks um, and local community to um, basically buy shares into the business um, which is the Food Connect shed. So they didn't actually buy shares in Food Connect, the social enterprise. Yeah. They bought shares in the, the company that owned the shed basically. Okay. Um, and the revenue, the dividends that they get is based on the rental income that the shed gets mm. from all the tenants and Food Connect is just one tenant out of 24. So tell me about some of those other tenants that are in there and what they're doing and how they sort of are contributing to the local food system. Yep, Rob? Yeah, so um, there's, uh, I think, 12, 13 tenants who rent the kitchen. So they do everything from uh, quite a lot of fermenting businesses, so fermented chilli sauces, from, um, sauerkrauts, misos, um, um, kefirs, um, those sort of things. Um, treats, vegan or gluten-free treats, um, nuts. There's a, there's, a, uh, there's a cheesecake, a Japanese cheesecake maker there. Oh, yeah. Uh, all handmade, just extraordinary. I don't know. I've never tasted a Japanese cheesecake until Singh and Befian turned up. Yeah. Um, and then we've got a brewery, um, we've got a distillery about to move in. So the brewery is more around funk. So it's a, it's a probiotic, naturally fermented, naturally yeasted, you know, and then aged for two years in oak barrels, beer, oh, wow. beer bottled That's in champagne great. bottles. So that'll be pretty, that'll be pretty special. Yeah. Um, uh, we've got a, you know, a, a, a gluten-free um, cake mix sort of blending company. Yeah. Um, Food Connect, obviously. Um, and then we've got the event space, uh, which obviously during COVID... Um, Did you mention Oz Harvest? Oz Harvest, Oz Harvest. They're oh, yeah. the so Food Rescue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's quite... And going back to that, um, the, the, the original question about why we... The shed... Yeah, I mean, we wanted to have long-term tenure, but it was driven by two, two pretty deep philosophies, one around associative economics, um, about 
having being in this under one roof with a whole bunch of um, like businesses where we, um, you know, the old saying about um, uh, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. Um, whereas in these, you know, we were finding that in my case, when I started Food Connect, I had to do everything. Whereas yeah. what really is what, how it's meant to work is we're all meant to find our speciality and surround each other with, yeah. you know, oh, you're good at marketing and you're good at numbers and, you know, you're yeah. good at uh, machinery and you're good at this. So yeah. it was to put as many businesses under the one shed that could all be in that spirit of associative economies. Yeah. Um, and then the second one was because of the, uh, you know, we're still competing against the cheap, cheap, down, down, down mantra of the, of the stupid markets. So we wanted to, um, we, you know, our, we're, I mean, simply put, we're trying to solve this conundrum about paying farmers fairly and providing food affordably. Yeah. Um, and uh, as you know, the organic affluent sort of things is sort of, even the word organic stops people who should get this food from buying it or even thinking about buying it because they, the perception is it's going to be expensive. Yeah. Um, and for the makers who are wanting to make really great products out of the raw produce, so we're, we're selling them the raw product or they're buying it direct off farmers mm. and wanting to pay the farmers fairly, it was really hard for them to get their costs down so they could offer this, you know, really great product at a price that was affordable. So not cheap, but not dear, but, you know, yeah. affordable. Yeah. So being in the shed at the one, we, we all knew, you know, they're all renting out at all these places um, you know, they've all got a forklift, they've all got a printer, they've all got an internet yeah. connection, they've all got all these things. Under the one roof, it's just one forklift. Or, yeah. you know, yeah. it just brought the fixed overheads down, as Emma was saying, because rent is so dear, and we're sharing all of those fixed costs. And mm. um, it, it, that's, you know, that's, that's the, you know, I suppose that's the, um, the nuts and bolts of why. Um, uh, and um, and as a result, you know, we've got people, you know, wanting to be here um, because they're going to be with businesses where they share ideas and sit mm. around and have a yarn and feel supported because it's a bloody lonely thing, you know, to be yeah. in your own business, as you know, Robin. So to yeah. be where you could just walk out of the kitchen and, oh, you know, I'm just going to sit down over here and there's a couple of people going to have a yarn to. Yeah. And, and, and maybe so we're doing the same thing and can... Yeah understand what you're going through and yeah 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 it's a, it's a beautiful it's really beautiful to see um and and whilst we want to put a lot more structure around facilitating more of those conversations it's been beautiful to see the conversations happen or when people go oh you're upstairs like we've got a creative design agency just just over here we've got a massage therapist bone therapist in the room next to us oh, yeah. but, um some of the tenants to a new did you know don't know they're there until they see them wander out into the bar area and go, oh, who are you, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty neat. Yeah. Mm. So there's so many aspects to Food Connect and it's, yeah, it's been a, I mean, I first came across Food Connect. Well, we did an article about you, Robert, in the first issue. So oh, <laughs> that was 2014, oh. I think. So. Yeah. It was so good to see you starting that, you know, because... My memories are of um, Green Connections. I don't know if you remember that. You know? Yeah, well, yeah. before me, I've heard yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, and so we hadn't had anything for such a long time. So to see a, a you know another magazine come out inspired uh, around the same things was just wonderful. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been great, and good to be able to fill the pages with articles about you guys. 
<laughs> well, you know, for an organisation with no marketing budget, it yeah. helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Now, um, so what about for people who want to do something similar? So, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, if you're in a smaller place and like you're saying, Australia compared to other um, countries, there's the distance, the lack of population, like that's in Brisbane. So what about like in smaller communities and, you know, what, what advice could you give to people how they might set something up that's similar? Yeah, well, there's, there's, I mean, as we know now, there's um, a bit of a CSA resurgence happening at the moment, you know, quite mm -hmm. a lot of, particularly through COVID, so many farmers yeah. went and set up box systems or CSAs. Um, so it's a really good opportunity at the moment to um, up the narrative and, and, um, and build a business model around how do we support those regional communities. Mm. Um, you know, we will see over the next you know, uh, COVID is giving us a one to two year opportunity to breathe or to maintain a conversation about looking inward and domestically about our food needs. Mm. Um, and my and, and my belief is that we eventually, when we've got that network right across Australia, all singing off the same song sheet, but autonomously doing, you know, really interesting and diverse stuff mm. that suits that, that reflects that region's needs and reflects the people in that region's needs um, mm. and what they want to do, then um, we can we can really create a really robust, um, not just food system but an economic system that that um, uh, um, that will really support um, people a lot more as you know because you know I don't know if you remember that picture. <laughs> um, uh, it was, you know, the old wave, that Japanese wave yeah. photo, and there was a COVID wave, and then there was the climate change wave behind it, and there was the biodiversity wave behind it. And then there was this really black wave. I don't know no, if you I saw the image. Seen that. No. It was an amazing image, and a lot of people were going, oh my God, you know, mm. it's sort of, um, this is just the start. Mm. So, um, so, my advice is to. Um, uh, is to look at all those models around there, you know, don't follow any script, don't replicate, um, you, you know, in a cookie cutter fashion. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, the 12 principles and the three ethics of permaculture are a wonderful framework for thinking about how to go about one of these sort of things. Um, and, and just start, you know, like me, I started as a pretty, you know, um, busted up dairy farmer um, who didn't have much awareness about social justice or, you know, these sort of more intellectual conversations that I'm now pretty um, conversed in. Uh, you just start where, where you're at and, 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 and do it in an authentic way and people will come to you. Um, and be really, I, I call it, you know, you have to be a bit of a dream multiplier. Um, you're not multiplying your dream, you're helping other people to multiply their dream or to yeah. unfold their dream. Yeah. That's probably been the critical thing and because what's been missed in the whole COVID conversation and we haven't got into, Robin, maybe is, and Emma, Emma can reflect on too, is that um, something special has happened up here in Brisbane, both in the social enterprise scene and in the food scene, because there's no one person orchestrating anything. It's not centrally controlled. There's not a lot of, you know, egos per se, who are just interested in their own brand. Mm. It's become, the movement has created its own mobilising mobilization. And during COVID, it was just all these people 
networking together, farmers. You know, it was just it was just quite a um, quite a, an amazing and beautiful thing to watch everyone just get on and do things without really any centralised coordination at all. It was just yeah. a wonderful thing, and I think. Um, and we have got so many people in Brisbane who are hard to do for a big city. Um, I'm, I expect that in places like Pambula and Maria and the South Coast, that, that that's a lot more prevalent because you know the degrees of separation are so much le you know less. Mm. Um, but in a city, it's really hard to create community where there wasn't one before. Yeah, and um, and I think that yeah, definitely that network effect. Um, has really, you know, just relationships that we've managed to build over the 15 years, you know, have really all come to um, fruition during COVID. Um, yeah. You know, just to, you know, build, what, what do they call it? The solidarity economy? <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, no, it's great. And it's, yeah, people aren't sitting around waiting for someone else to do it. They're just... That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, probably um, the two things... Um, that, that have been really um, helpful from a point of view of thinking, um, or two things. One is um, once you're sort of authentic and you're pretty settled in, in an egoless way about what you want to do, then the universe will provide. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is the, which comes from First Nations knowledge, which is this idea of just being um, non judgmental and being. Um, I suppose aware of um, or trying to be more aware of of the you know relation that relationships are key the mm. transaction comes later on it's it's the relationships and the building of that network um, needs to have a lot more investment in time in mm -hmm. and that's yeah. the most important bit after that it's it's really easy so you know um, uh, and, and I suppose that six years of me in the wilderness you know as an agricultural journeyman that that was that gave me those founding years where I could, you know, get over myself and, you know, think through a few things and develop some relationships. And, and takes uh, blokes a long time. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> so just going back, um, yeah, could you just give me, like, you're talking about you're a busted up dairy farmer and then you're a market gardener and... Could you tell us a bit about that and then what had happened to then bring you to this point of having to go into the wilderness, so to speak, and then come back and create this Food Connect? Yeah, um, so um, I stupidly bought the farm. I share farm with mum and dad um, for a while, you know, for quite a few years and then was trialling all these, you know, interesting um, uh, um, organic you could say um, ideas, and uh, Dad was Dad was he was quite progressive. He he, he was interested, but um, uh, but at one point he just he just you know said, "Listen, you know I'm too old for this, uh, and I'm not happy with it. So you're gonna have to buy the farm if you want to do them. You're gonna have to buy it off me." Mm -hmm. And me being the oldest of nine siblings, and um, you know full of full of piss and wind, said yes, buy it and whatever else, you know, name your price. And, you know, yeah, and stupidly went out and tried to prove him wrong. Um, and so I bought the farm in April and then two months later, and I'd worked with the Dairy Farm Cooperative 
around the price and the forecasting and all that sort of because it was you know it was a one and a half million dollar farm I was buying you know milking three hundred cows and um, and um, uh, basically two months later the opening price so this is the first wave of dairy deregulation the opening price was twenty percent down on what we'd forecast with the dairy mm -hmm. company wow. so I was already looking down the barrel and we went through probably one of the wettest winters in history in West this in Western Victoria. And then it snapped dried in spring, uh, and then we went into our first drought. Um, and then opening price next year, 5% down, another drought. No, so no autumn break, um, no autumn break for three years. And um, I was milking 300 cows. Last year I was milking 300 cows by myself oh, and not, not in a very good way. Yeah. Um, the bank uh, in my lowest cash flow period, which is March, February, March, wrote me a letter saying you need to pay us back a hundred grand um, or uh, that's it. Mm -hmm. So I went and sold a hundred of my best cows to raise that hundred grand. I think I raised about 80 grand and that satisfied them for a bit, but then we didn't get the autumn break again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was looking down the barrel of not only, you know, a, a fair bit of mental um, issues in terms of my outlook on life mm -hmm. um, to be, you know, Frank, but also uh, financially, I was in, you know, utterly, utterly ruined. Mm. Um, and uh, um, uh, yeah, left, you know, just lost the plot and, and uh, the farm was taken away from me and everything in it. And I was mm. you know, at 90 grand of debt. Oh. Um, yeah, so thankfully, one of my brothers and my uncle, the same uncle who talked me, talked me out of joining the priesthood when I was 16. <laughs> He oh, came and saw me and he said, why don't you piss off to Tasmania? Um, he'd just come back from a little holiday there and he said, it's amazing. You'll, you'll, you know, you'll piece things back together again over there. Just clear off and, yeah. um, you know, give yourself a bit of a break. And my brother, Tim, gave me a couple of grand and said, here's the money to buy some camping gear and, you know, see you when we see you. Um, yeah, so... Um, and I saw that story is fairly... Common, common with yeah, a lot of farmers yeah, yeah that yeah. would relate to that yeah that's right and um yeah so there was two sort of awakenings in tasmania one was the first person and i you know uh, i won't go into the whole story but i camped up on the cliff overlooking the um uh, bass Strait, you know uh -huh. to say goodbye to the farm you know on victoria i couldn't see it obviously it was just a, a symbolic gesture to camp there yeah. and, and have my final goodbye and um, as I was setting up tent, this Aboriginal fella come through the, you know, the, um, the twilight gloom and said, hey, mate, you can't camp there. This is, you know, sacred country. Uh, it's our country. And I went, holy Jesus, you know. And uh, me being from Western Victoria where there was, there was not an Aboriginal at all, mm. um, uh, I said to him, you know, I said, oh, sorry, mate. Anyway, he... He sat with me for probably an hour and heard my story and then he gave me the keys to Tasmania. He said, this is, if you want to walk, you know, if you want to walk through this country, these are the questions you've got to ask. You've got to be open to the elders and, the and, you know, past mm. uh, and asking permission and all these sort of things. And then the next morning when I woke up, he told me, he gave me, he said, you can camp down there, you know, um, off, just off country. Um, and the next morning I woke up with this incredible revelation that um, my big, you know, sook my, I was, you know, sucking a lot about me being the fourth generation dairy farmer to lose the farm and, and you know, all of that shit. 
that I was uh, banging on myself, I realised that, you know, the bloke who I'd had a conversation with last night, we'd taken away 2,000 generations. Mm. And here he was giving me time and space and listening to my story and uh, I need to... So from that, I, I realised that my issue was spilt milk in yeah. comparison, put yeah. it all in perspective. Yeah. And I needed to, you know... Um, so it was pretty pretty pivotal, you know, when um, when I was in a bit of a mess. Yeah. I mean, not that it saved me or, you know, anything like that. I was still messed, but it, it really gave me inspiration to... It gave me perspective. Yeah, yeah. And then, so you spent some time in Tassie and did market gardening. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I uh, did a bit of meditation and just bushwalking for six or so months and then come out um, and uh, um, applied for a job on a dairy farm and was there for about two days and the, the, it was just disastrous. It was milking 500 cows and oh. just it was just so, I just felt like I just, I wasn't ready for that yet. Yeah, yeah. And then worked my way down to Hobart and found myself on a CSA, an operating CSA down there just outside of Hobart. And yeah. then camped. In, in, they were, he was really happy for me, Mark. was really happy for me to camp and help him out um, on that farm. And that was where I got the CSA bug. Yeah. You know, I, I saw city people coming in, yeah. you know, coming to the farm to help harvest on a Friday and... Um, and on the weekends, they come and you know spread compost and plant and yeah. it was it, for me being a dairy farmer where I had no idea of who drank my milk, let alone what my milk was turned into. To mm. see this, it was just like wow, yeah, so, so inspiring. So that was where I got the bug, and I went up the road and um, found another farm um, that, that looked empty. <laughs> um, yeah. And I approached the farmer, and he said I could rent that paddock over there, and that was where I started this market garden that sold direct, um, you know, to about 20 people and a couple of restaurants in town, in Hobart. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that was, that was, um, that was an amazing experience. Yeah. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. Here we are today, it's amazing. amazing. Mm. And like a, a 20 year overnight sensation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I imagine there's been many, many, many years of hard work and I just, Oh God. Yeah, I can't imagine the complexities of trying to get it all to work and, yeah. 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 So well done, both of you and the whole team. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you so much for talking to me. And um, Thanks, Robin, yeah. for inviting us. It was lovely to see you. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it will inspire others and, yeah, give people a bit of a perspective of how things can be. They don't, it doesn't have to all be supermarkets. and Not at all. There are a lot of other options. Life is so much better on the other side of supermarkets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks, yeah, Thanks wonderful. Wonderful to right. chat. Yeah. yeah, good luck with the future. Thanks, Thanks. you too. You've been listening to the PIP podcast with Emma Kate Rose and Robert Pekin from Food Connect. To read more about what they're doing, you can find the article written by Emma Kate in issue 17 of PIP magazine. Also, you can go to Food Connect's website and you can find out more about the great things they're doing there. That's at foodconnect.com.au. For lots of other great articles online, check out the PIP Magazine website, pipmagazine.com.au.